Happy Thursday. Welcome to Fit Body Happy Joints. My name is Shannon. Today we have Dr. Ben Bickman on the podcast. Dr. Ben Bickman is a metabolic scientist, and our topic today is insulin sensitivity and metabolism. So in this episode, we get into why it's important to be insulin sensitive. He talks about improving insulin sensitivity, and we talk about some myths around metabolism. I will say that we do talk about fasting and fat loss in this episode, and he gives his educated opinion on fasting and fat loss. I am not biased at all when it comes to this information. I am not an expert in fasting. I'm not an expert in nutrition. My goal with this podcast is to just bring guests on who are educated in their field and ask them questions so that we can ultimately educate ourselves sometimes with different perspectives so that we can make a decision that's really truly best for our body. And I'm also not saying that you should or shouldn't intermittent fast or that you should or shouldn't eat high carb or low carb or whatever. Because I will say that my guest that I'm having on in a few weeks does not recommend fasting or low carb for women. And I I just know there's endless debate about fasting and all of this information and whether or not you should do it. Um, And again, I'm not the expert when it comes to this. This is all just information. So please don't take any of this information as specific advice for you. But the one thing that I really do want to point out that I loved about this episode and where I can really tie my expertise into is that Ben, as a metabolic scientist, doesn't recommend tracking calories burned from your workouts. And if you've been following me for any length of time, you know that I'm a huge proponent of ditching the fitness watch and focusing on your muscles instead of focusing on how many calories that you've burned. So to hear a metabolic scientist really endorse the message that you don't you don't really need to worry about how many calories you're burning was just really truly powerful. And I hope that it will help those of you who are struggling to break that mindset that your workouts need to be super grueling and burn a million calories in order to be effective. So I'm excited to get into this episode. Before we do, really quickly, I just want to announce that if you're listening to this podcast in the time that it is released, we are rerunning our foundations program. Our foundations program is a beginner's program. We start slow. Doesn't mean the classes are easy. They're still going to cook your muscles and make you feel really strong, but uh, we really do cover the foundations. It's a four-week program, but the first two weeks will be free to everyone. So if you want to try the first two weeks of the Evlo Foundations program, I will put a link in the show notes. You can click and sign up. We are getting started with that on June 6th. So you'll get the first two weeks free, and then if you want the last two weeks, you can join the membership for 14 days for free. So really, you can get the entire month for free if you'd like. So that is in the show notes. Without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Ben. Okay. Welcome, Dr. Bickman. Do you go by Dr. Bickman? Do you Please call ben? me ben. 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 Okay. All right. Amazing. Welcome, Ben. Um, my audience is going to be so excited to have you because I have had so many people from my audience send me your profile on Instagram. So oh, good. that's how I found you. So they're going to be thrilled to have you on. Um, so first off, can you give a little introduction about who you are and, and your background and history? Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah. So I am a husband and a father first and foremost, but people don't want my parenting advice. So I'm a scientist and a professor. 
And I teach uh, pathophysiology, which is the sick body, and endocrinology, which is the study of hormones. And then I am the director of the Diabetes Research Lab here. And that reflects my professional research interests, which is to understand metabolic disorders. And that is a vague way of describing it. So to be a little more precise, I study nutrient metabolism and mitochondrial function and I would say most importantly, the effects of insulin and how insulin can contribute to these processes in a good way or very often in an unfortunate way. Yes. Well, we're going to, I would love to talk extensively about insulin. Um, Before we do, can you just kind of summarize what is considered optimal metabolic health? Yeah. Yeah. That's an overview. Yeah. Uh, um, I would say, in its simplest definition, it would be a body that is insulin sensitive and, and is and and a body that is spending the majority of its life each day in this, where insulin levels are low. That to me is the key to optimal metabolic health. And even what does metabolic health mean? It just means that hormones and biochemical processes are working well. And when insulin is chronically elevated, it disrupts that process, all of those processes. Okay. So to that end, what is insulin resistance, sensitivity? What is low insulin? Why, why should we care? Can you back way up and talk about what insulin is and why we want it to be low? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So insulin is one of the many, many hormones flowing through the blood and it's unique in a few ways uh, in that one, it's actual circulating levels are very, very low in this kind of picomolar range, which is, which is really low by, uh, in comparison to other hormones like sex hormones, for example, are you know, thousands times higher than that. So it's, it's a very low circulating hormone, which just kind of reflects how powerful it is. It, you don't need a lot of insulin to get the job done, but also the scope of its effect. It literally can affect every single cell of the body. And, and there are insulin receptors at every single cell. And because every cell does different things, it's no surprise that insulin's specific effects at various cells is diverse. What insulin tells a neuron to do is not the same as what it, tell, as what it tells a muscle cell to do. And neither of those is the same as what it tells the theca cells of the ovaries to do. There are very different effects throughout the body, but every single cell in some way responds to insulin, or it should. And that leads me to defining insulin resistance Insulin resistance is a disorder of two parts. There are two absolutely essential, inextricable parts to insulin resistance. The first is the one that gives it its name in the first place, which is that insulin isn't working well. To be a little more precise, it's that insulin isn't working well at all the cells of the body. So some cells are still responsive to insulin, but now some cells aren't. That is insulin resistance. But then the other piece of this, the other side of this coin, if you will, is that blood insulin levels are elevated. That's an important component that sometimes people try to tease apart or pull it off of or just ignore it. You cannot. Anytime we're invoking insulin resistance in the body, there are two problems that are coming always concurrently. One is that insulin isn't working the same way at certain cells, and two, blood insulin levels are elevated. There's no separating that last one. But that matters that the kind of two aspects to define insulin resistance matters tremendously because it helps us put the scope of the problem 
in, in place where insulin resistance is not only the most common problem by far in the United States and even globally, it's, it is the most common health problem, but two, it's beyond its prevalence is its relevance, which is to say it affects virtually every chronic disease. And just to put a fine point on this, if we take infertility, we, we have two versions of infertility, polycystic ovary syndrome in the woman or erectile dysfunction in the man, each the two most common problems in their respective sexes. Both of those are very intimately related to insulin resistance, but the different aspects of it. On one hand, with polycystic ovary syndrome, it's her chronically elevated insulin levels that are affecting the conversion of testosterone into estrogens. It's inhibiting that enzyme that mediates that conversion. And thus, her body has relatively too high testosterone and relatively too low of estrogens, and she doesn't have normal ovulatory function. In contrast, in erectile dysfunction, um, it's not a problem of too much insulin per se, but rather it's the insulin resistance. And normally, when insulin starts to flow through blood vessels, it will induce a vasodilation of the blood vessels by activating a series of enzymes. But when the blood vessels themselves, when the endothelium becomes insulin resistant, blood vessels that should be dilating stay constricted. And now in the man, that's manifesting in very many as erectile dysfunction. So those are perfect examples reflecting the two kind of parts of this demon, this beast that we're calling insulin resistance. Wow. There was a lot there. And, yeah. and it just goes to show um, how misunderstood this is, because I think that people hear insulin resistance and they think, oh, well, I'm not diabetic. I'm not pre-diabetic. I don't need to worry about this. But is this something that we should all be concerned with? Should we all be concerned with optimizing our insulin levels? Oh, oh yeah, for sure. Um, in, in part, because this problem is much more common than people think. A paper was published um, out of the School of Public Health at um, UNC Chapel Hill in 2018, and they found through surveys across the country that 88% of U.S. adults were considered metabolically unfit. And they, they came to that conclusion by measuring the components of the metabolic syndrome. And if someone had at least one of the five aspects of the metabolic syndrome, they considered them to be not, you know, in optimal metabolic health. Clearly something was wrong. And so there were only 12% of U.S. adults who were good at all five aspects of the metabolic syndrome. Now, I was talking about insulin resistance syndrome or insulin resistance. That is, in fact, the root of the metabolic syndrome. And this is reflected in the fact that the metabolic syndrome used to be called the insulin resistance syndrome. And then we just changed the name a number of years ago. And I don't blame them, whoever they were. Metabolic has a much more compelling ring to it than insulin resistance. But it also it plays into kind of what you, another part of what you'd asked about, um, which is it's easy for people not to think this is relevant to them because they hear the word insulin and they just think of diabetes. They're not thinking of the fact that insulin resistance is one, the most common problem. And two, it is likely the key contributor to their hypertension or their Alzheimer's disease or their fatty liver disease or their, or their infertility and more and more and more. Wow. Yes. And can someone who looks healthy and looks fit, can they have insulin resistance or oh, is yeah. it mainly in a certain population? Yeah, that, that's a really good question um, because it also uh, helps us understand just how sneaky insulin resistance is. Commonly, it would 
play out how you expect it would, which is someone's a little overweight and, and they have some problems. But even that is very subjective. When I was doing my, my fellowship work in a country in Singapore on the other side of the world, one of the reasons Singapore had such an interest in understanding metabolic health is because of the differences that you see across ethnicities. For example, you could take a Chinese ethnicity man you know, kind of the average Singaporean guy, but also in Singapore, you could take a, a man who is of Northern European descent or what we'd call Caucasian. And, and these are, they're the same age, same lifestyle habits, gaining weight at the same rate, if you will. And yet the guy of Chinese ethnicity starts to suffer from the consequences of that weight gain much, much sooner than the fellow of Northern European descent. And, and so even as so you look at the Chinese ethnicity guy and you'd say, well, how on earth do you already have substantial hypertension elevate, and, and type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease? And you're only moderately overweight. You know, the, he may barely look even a little chubby. And a uh, uh, Northern European guy who's a little chubby, he's still doing fine. There's nothing going wrong in him yet. So even this kind of clever little quip of, of, well, if they look a little chubby, then yeah, probably something's wrong. Even that can be a little deceiving, but to make matters even more complicated, you can go down to kind of the base layer or the base cell that, that lights this whole thing. And that's the fat cell. And there is a study done in young women with polycystic ovary syndrome, which is very often a manifestation of insulin resistance. And they were normal weight or they matched them to body weights of women without um, PCOS. So same body weight. And they conducted a test to determine the insulin resistance at the fat cells. And even though they didn't have overt symptoms of insulin resistance, they detected fat cell insulin resistance. And I'm now going to take it one step further to say that I bet if they had done fat tissue biopsies of the women with PCOS, even though they were the same body weight, I suspect that not that they would have had more fat cells, but that their fat cells would be on average much larger. And that kind of comes, I don't want to get ahead of the conversation here, but, but it's the fat cell that initiates insulin resistance and it's due to how the fat tissue itself is growing. Okay. So what is the different, what is the difference then between those two groups of people? Is it genetics? Is it lifestyle? Is it yeah. a little bit of both? What is causing the differences in fat between yeah. those two groups? Yeah. Yeah. So even, even we could say in both of the two groups that I've mentioned, whether it was the young women with PCOS versus their same body weight counterparts without PCOS, or whether it is the two fellas in Singapore going to play racquetball, one's white, one's Chinese, Asian ethnicity, and why they can't have the same consequences of fat gain very, very often in both of these instances, in fact, I shouldn't say very often, in both of these instances, it would be a matter of fat cell size. So if you, let's go back to the, either one of these. The, so the two groups of people, they're both gaining the exact same amount of weight. By mass, they have the same amount of fat on their bodies. But we gain fat through two different processes. We gain fat through a process called hypertrophy, which is when the fat cell number stays the same, but each fat cell is growing in, in size to the tune of even three or four or five times bigger than normal, or you have a fat cell number increase and the fat cell size is staying relatively modest. That's a growth called hyperplasia. So fat tissue can grow through both of these 
at certain times of life. But usually what's happening through infancy, childhood, and adolescence is hyperplasia. We are creating more and more fat cells. Then once we finish adolescence, usually the fat cell number that we have at the end of adolescence is the same number we're going to have until around the age of 70, at which point it starts to drop off a bit. But throughout that time, any fat gain or loss is a matter of growing or shrinking the fat cells. Well, some ethnicities and some people due to genetics and partly due to lifestyle variables, will have fat gain grow more selectively through hypertrophy. But this is where the majority of people are. But some ethnicities and some individuals will just go into hypertrophy a little sooner. Whereas others, which is a minority of people, will have a little capacity for some additional hyperplasia, and then they reach that threshold and start to have hypertrophy. But it's just kind of a matter of where the threshold is. At what point do the fat cells start going undergoing hypertrophy? But that's the problem. When a fat cell becomes hypertrophic, two issues start to occur that make it sick and then spreading that throughout the body. The first one is that as the fat cell is reaching a point of maximum dimension, it doesn't want to grow anymore. Well, that puts it at odds with the hormone insulin because insulin signals fat cell growth. And so the fat cell is essentially telling insulin, hey, you want me to keep growing? I can't keep growing. And so now I'm going to start leaking fats, even though you're trying to tell me not to. And so a common test of measuring um, the state of the fat cell is measuring something called free fatty acids. Because if insulin is high, in fact, this is the test they did in those young women. If insulin is high, free fatty acids should be low because insulin is inhibiting lipolysis or the breakdown of fat and free fatty acids are the product of lipolysis. So these two should only ever be in opposites. If you're fasting, insulin is low, fat mobilization and fat burning is up, so free fatty acids would be up. If they're both up, that means the fat cell is insulin resistant. So that starts to happen. The hypertrophic fat cell, in order to prevent further growth, which might damage itself, it starts to become insulin resistant. At the same time, as the fat cells are undergoing hypertrophy, they begin to push each other further and further away from capillaries, which is the blood vessels at the cellular level. That is what's feeding the cell and and taking the metabolites away from the cell, but essentially to help the cell survive. And as the fat cells are undergoing hypertrophy and pushing each other further and further away from the capillaries, the fat cells become, the hypertrophic fat cells become hypoxic or low oxygen. And in order to prevent them from dying due to the hypoxia, the fat cells start secreting pro-inflammatory cytokines, which in part can help stimulate the growth of new blood vessels. There's of course, other consequences, which is now promoting inflammation, at least to a mild degree, throughout the rest of the body. That's problematic. But the the tragedy of this whole paradigm is that the hypertrophic fat cell becomes insulin resistant and pro-inflammatory in order to ensure its own survival. A consequence of this is that the rest of the body starts bearing the, the, the burden here, and then it starts spreading the insulin resistance throughout the rest of the body through those two mechanisms, depositing fat all around the body in tissues that aren't designed for it, which is called lipotoxicity, and activating immune pathways in cells, which are known to explicitly cause insulin resistance in those cells. So that, that was a really long-winded way of answering the question of how is it that fat storage can be problematic in some instances and relatively benign in others. Wow. 
And you could see how it's kind of a, uh, a spiraling effect and how it would be hard to lose weight if you're insulin resistant, because the fat cells are resistant to, to shrink. Yeah, that's um, right. Yeah. It becomes a self-perpetuating problem, no doubt, because yeah. as the fat cell and the rest of the body starts becoming more insulin resistant, insulin continues to elevate, which continues to try to, it, it ends up just reinforcing the insulin resistance because a lot of insulin feeds insulin resistance, too much insulin. So in that circumstance where we have an individual with hypertrophic fat cells, they've got the high insulin, what is the first plan of attack? Should it be um, to get insulin lower? And if so, how do, how do we improve that insulin sensitivity with someone like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's wonderful. So the, the key is shrinking fat cells. Now, of course, easier said than done, right? People want to do that. And we've been trying to do that really well for, for decades. Shrinking a fat cell is essential to improving insulin sensitivity. And there are two ways to do that. One I think is better than the other. And I won't leave any ambiguity with regards to which one I think is best. Um, and that is essentially low energy or low insulin, you know, or both because they often will play into each other. But the first plan of attack could be that the body could, because a fat cell is maintaining its growth because insulin is telling it to grow and because there's sufficient calories to provide the, the fuel for that growth. Because if insulin is telling the fat cell to create and store fat, it has to have carbons from glucose or fatty acids in order to actually store fat. So you have to have enough calories there to fuel that growth. So both of these are relevant to fat cell growth, insulin and calories. And both of them are relevant to, in, to fat cell shrinking. You either cut the calories or cut the insulin. Um, or, or both. But when someone is cutting calories, there is a consideration there, um, which is hunger. Because we typically tell people to cut calories by eating less and exercising more. But to kind of help us appreciate the problem in that advice, let's imagine, if you will, that we were all going to a buffet. And at this buffet, we know that the world's best chefs are going to be there, creating the most delicious food we could imagine. And our host has encouraged us to come hungry so that we can enjoy as much of the variety of these foods as possible. Well, what would we do to make sure we came to that dinner as hungry as possible? We would exercise a little more in the days preceding the event, and we would eat a little less in the days up leading up to that. Well, it would work. We would go to that dinner as hungry as possible. But that's also why a caloric-centric, a low-energy-based fat-shrinking model doesn't work in the long term because hunger always wins. We are creating the perfect failure by ensuring that we're going to be as hungry as possible. So don't start the fat-shrinking journey on a hunger-based strategy. Start it with a low-insulin strategy. And that's where we come to what I consider to be the pillars of an insulin-sensitizing diet, which is control carbohydrates, prioritize protein, and don't fear fat. Um, with the control carbohydrates, it's essentially just don't get your carbohydrates from bags and boxes with barcodes. Eat fruits and vegetables, don't drink them. That's kind of what I mean. And then with proteins and fats, it's basically just be liberal with them, essentially, to the point that you don't force hunger. That if you're hungry, eat. Just follow those three rules. If you're not hungry, don't eat. And that'll be a good way to make sure insulin stays low because it's the carbohydrates that are the primary insulin spike. The protein and the fat is having little 
to no effect on insulin, and thus they can improve insulin sensitivity. But altogether, um, if you start the journey with a low insulin paradigm, a fat cell cannot help but start shrinking. It has to, because insulin is the signal that's telling it to stay big. A fat cell on its own will not know what to do with energy. Case in point, I'm growing fat cells in my lab right now across the hallway. We have in these little Petri dishes, a bunch of little fat cells, and we can have the fat cells swimming in a sea of, of calories, of fats and glucose, and the fat cell will not get big. It does not know what to do with that energy, with those calories. Until we put insulin into the culture medium, into that little culture bath, now it knows what to do. Now it's saying, oh, okay, I'm supposed to grow and store energy. All right, now I'll start taking this in and locking it up inside. So we just sort of use that kind of information and say, let's drop the insulin. Now the fat cells are going to be shrinking, sharing their energy with the body to be burned. Let's make sure we're learning how to burn our own stored energy. That's what fat cells are. It's like we have a bunch of energy drinks and energy bars strapped to our body. We're just waiting. The body's just waiting for us to come and open those up and use them. It can only do so when insulin is low. So start with the low insulin paradigm, and usually that will result in dramatic fat cell shrinking or fat loss, and, and then the person may get to a plateau. At that, and if they still realize, and they're being honest with themselves, not deceiving themselves, then they may say, well, I obviously have a lot more fat I still want to lose. Now you can go to the energy approach. Because by that point, the person has become accustomed to burning their own fat for fuel. And so now if they start intermittent fasting or you know, multi-day fasting, they're more accustomed to that state. Their brain is used to burning ketones. They're used to relying on their own fat as energy. And, and so they're more uh, adapt, adapted to this fasted state and, and a lower energy state. And they don't have to fight as much with hunger. They've learned how to kind of adapt to hunger by using all the energy they have, because there's no reason why a person should be hungry when they have hundreds of thousands of calories stored on their body as fat. We just have to learn how to use it. But what about the argument that um, fasting can increase cortisol and cortisol has uh, some play on insulin? What is your, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Yeah, I think my thoughts are that that has been some findings that have been wildly overblown. So I am aware of one study in humans, because we're talking about humans. We don't care what's happening in rodents. One study in humans that found in women that um, cortisol levels were increased for about a day, and then they went down back to normal. That did not happen in men. So there was some justification to say, oh, well, women are responding differently to this than men are. Totally. That's absolutely true. But it was such an acute phenomenon, and it was so modest that I would say we have made a mountain out of a molehill. There is no reason to worry about the cortisol bump um, because it goes up and then it comes back down, um, and, and thus there's no concern. Now, if cortisol did stay elevated, that would absolutely be a cause of concern because cortisol stimulates insulin resistance. That's one of the fun, that's one of the key or what I call primary causes of insulin resistance, which is stress. In fact, I've mentioned them all now. Chronically elevated insulin is a cause of insulin resistance. Inflammation is a cause of insulin resistance, the activation of immune pathways. And third, stress. And specifically, because that is too often invoked, I mean the stress hormones, cortisol and epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, those will cause insulin resistance, but it just doesn't come, it, it is not relevant in a fasted state.
Okay. I'm that's going to clear up a lot of, a lot of confusion. So I really Good. appreciate you going into that. I want to come back to the fast fasting thing in a moment, but what, where does exercise play into improving insulin sensitivity and can, and in some cases, can certain doses of exercise reduce insulin sensitivity? Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So muscle is the main consumer of glucose in the body. So if, if, if anyone is, has ever worn a CG, a continuous glucose monitor, they'll eat this, they'll eat something starchy, they'll eat a bagel or whatever, and they see their glucose come up and then eventually it starts to climb back down. As it starts to come back down, 80% of all that glucose that's dropping out of the blood is going into the muscle. So the muscle takes the lion's share of glucose in part because we just have so much of it relative to any other tissue and in part because it has a relatively high metabolic rate. Of course, it can have a wildly high metabolic rate when we exercise. And and that's where exercise becomes particularly relevant because when we actually get all these muscles up and moving, they become hungrier and they are so desperate for energy that normally insulin is in charge of how much glucose is coming into the muscle. So the muscle must be responding to insulin. However, when the muscle is exercising, it becomes so hungry for glucose that it has within itself an ability to open up the glucose doors, a back door, if you will, that is not dependent on insulin. In other words, there's an insulin independent glucose transporter here or or transporting mechanism here. And thus exercise is a wonderful way of helping push the glucose down in which if glucose is coming down, insulin does too. But even independent of the effect of consuming glucose and insulin isn't needed for that, insulin is antagonistic or is, is the opposite of, of, of the exercise state. Because when we're exercising, we want to be mobilizing energy. We want fat cells to be sharing their fat. We want the liver to be sharing its glucose, um, the glycogen in the glucose. But if insulin is elevated, that cannot happen. And so the body would quickly run out of glucose and, and that, would be a, a, that would be lethal, of course. So the moment the body starts exercising, all of these counter-insulin hormones start to come into, start to come to life, like glucagon, cortisol, growth hormone, uh, epinephrine, all of those are insulin inhibitors. And so they basically, the exercise state is such a powerful demand metabolically. These hormones just come to life, if you will. And they say to insulin, you are not a part of this. It's time for you to take a back seat. We're in charge now. We need to mobilize energy. And that's largely what they do. And then after the end of the exercise stimulus, we've cleared all that glucose, any excess glucose from the blood. These energy using, um, uh, energy mobilizing hormones start to subside. And now insulin starts to come back up to at least to some modest degree. So exercising itself, like the act of exercising can improve your insulin sensitivity. What about your body's adaptations to, to exercise, namely muscle growth? How does that improve or affect your insulin? Sensitivity? Yeah. 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 It matters tremendously. Uh, if you have more muscle mass, you have more glucose um, deposit sites and you have more of an insulin responsive tissue um, to help pull in that glucose. So more muscle mass matters enormously. That should be among the many reasons to want more muscle. Improving insulin sensitivity is absolutely one of them. Um, But you'd asked something interesting in your initial question surrounding exercise, where if a person is overtraining, that is a stress state and cortisol will be elevated um, uh, in response to that stress. 
And so, there, which is going to then promote insulin resistance. And the more the body becomes insulin resistant, the more it diminishes the muscle's capacity to stay big. And you can have muscle shrinking or muscle wasting as the muscle becomes insulin resistant. So that can start to feed into each other. And so it's definitely a call to make sure you know what your limits are. And while I am an enormous advocate of intensity of exercise and intensity matters, um, and we should not be afraid of it. It also is, uh, an, yeah, the, this call, a reminder that you don't want to go too far. Yeah. And that's, um, I've heard from so many of my members who have come from working out 90 minutes a day, burning as many calories as possible, eating very, very little, and yet still gaining weight. And so that takes me to my next question where calories in have to be less than calories out for weight loss. Is it that simple? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it is that simple in this, in the context of pure thermodynamics, but it is not that simple in that it is impossible for us to account for all the calories in and all the calories out. We cannot know how much of what we're eating actually is turning into available energy in the blood. There are differences in the levels of what we absorb. Um, that's a, one, one variable that, is, um, that we cannot account for with what's coming in. And with regards to what's going out, there are so many inputs or so many outputs, I, I should say, that we just don't account for. We just think we can determine that by just measuring our metabolic rate. That cannot account for it. One, the mechanism of measuring metabolic rate is probably going to be flawed. Uh, and there's really no way for the average person to do that anyway. But we know that when insulin is low, metabolic rate goes up by about 10 to 20%. So if someone is in a low insulin state, Oddly enough, even fasting, fasting increases metabolic rate. Um, so we know metabolic rate, if insulin is low, metabolic rate will be higher than if insulin has been spiked. This is, we know this, um, it, you know, on the order of two or 300 calories a day, your metabolic rates increased if insulin is low. Well, that's a pretty significant amount. Beyond that increased metabolic rate is the fact that if someone has low enough insulin that they're making ketones from their fat burning, now they're wasting energy. Not only do they have an elevated metabolic rate, but now they've introduced this other output, which is just wasting of energy in the form of eliminating ketones from the body. A ketone is a caloric molecule. A ketone has about the same calories as glucose does. And so when we put that, when we see that in the light of the fact that we're breathing out ketones or we're urinating ketones out, those are actual energetic molecules that did not have to be stored or burned, you know, which we would typically only invoke in the laws of, uh, it, with calories in, calories out. We'd say you got to burn it or store it. Well, not in the case of ketones. In some, in many instances, well, every instance, if a person is in ketosis, they've now introduced an entirely new form of, of caloric battle or a new, a new variable in the caloric balance equation, which is energy wasting. So my very strong sentiment on this is yes, calories matter, but it's almost pointless to try to base, to focus on them because you cannot account for them. And moreover, the more determined you are to be in a caloric deficit, the hungrier you're going to be and hunger is going to win. And so don't, uh, so uh, again, uh, I, and my PhD is bioenergetics, so I feel particularly qualified to talk about energy use in cells um, more, than, more than most people. I appreciate 
calories and energy that we have to account for it, but attempting to account for it is a fool's errand. You can't. It, it, there, and, and I only see, you know, like uh, the, the, the biggest loser um, TV show. Those people lose an incredible amount of weight in a very condensed period of time because of that idea of calories in, calories out. They are starved. And how often do we ever see a reunion tour of those contestants? Never, because they all gain it back and then some um, for reasons that I won't even get into now. But suffice it to say, if your weight loss strategy is based on hunger, which the calories in, calories out, eat less, exercise more paradigm is, then I, I would have a very hard time being optimistic in the long-term success of that person. Yeah. That's why I don't even recommend using a fitness watch to track your calories out. Good for you. I don't even, Good for you. I just say, focus on how the muscle is feeling, focus on how you are, how you are, um, strengthening your muscles. Mm-hmm. And cause ultimately, like you're saying more muscle leads yep. to yep. better insulin resistance yep. leads to better fat loss indirectly. So, um, so on that, on that, um, same note, is it true that if you cut your calories, that you reduce your metabolism? Oh like yeah. You severely yeah. cut calories. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. So, um, but even then, so Shannon, I'm going to answer the question and then I'm going to say that it doesn't really matter, <laughs> um, but, but metabolic rate is, is, is quite variable. And the truth of it is it doesn't really play into anyone's weight loss or weight gain journey. There was a really, but, but yeah, if you start to now in the short term of a, if someone were engaging in a multi-day fast within the first 24 to 36 hours, metabolic rate will go up and then it will start to go down because of course it's antithetical to continue to be burning a high rate of energy if there's none coming in. And so it starts, it would start to drop. But importantly, if you take a guy who's a hundred pounds, like if I suddenly over the next several months gained a hundred pounds of pure fat, my metabolic rate would be significantly higher than it is at the moment. A bigger body has a higher metabolic rate than a smaller body. And so if you have two college roommates, and I hear this all the time as a professor, one scrawny guy bragging about how high his metabolic rate is to his larger roommate, that is absolutely not true. Um, and, and so now I'll, I'll mention a specific study. There was a really cool study done that followed, this study was done in men, but there's no reason to think it would be any exception in women, that they followed um, men for 10 years and measured their metabolic rate at year zero and then measured, okay, who, okay, they had guys with all levels of metabolic rate, high or low. And when they followed them up over the next, over these next 10 years, who had a high or low metabolic rate had no predictive power on who gained the most or least amount of fat. Or, or weight at all. It is, was in no way predictive. Moreover, a study published just a few months ago, uh, maybe it was a year ago, found that metabolic rate essentially doesn't change in men or women from the age of about 20 to about 70. Well, it was about 60, 65. It stayed the same. Even during menopause, even during, you know, people graduate from college, they get married, they start having babies and they gain weight or the dad's more sedentary and they say, well, I, well, I got married and my metabolic rate went down or I went through menopause and my metabolic rate went down. It didn't. Metabolic rate didn't change. So any kind of weight gain the person's experiencing, it's not because their metabolic rate slowed. It's just because they start eating differently. And that starts to signal to the body to store more or less fat. So yes, food, eating food, increases metabolic rate, at least in the short term, not eating food in the longer term would result in a lower metabolic rate, especially as the person's losing weight, 
metabolic rate will come down. But if there's any takeaway from my little rant here, it's don't worry about it. So you're saying we're asking the wrong question. We shouldn't be asking how, how can I improve my metabolism? We should be asking how can I improve my insulin sensitivity? Yeah. In fact, Shannon, to make this even a little more complicated, I would say the question would be perhaps be how can I make my metabolic function less efficient? You know, like you hear these kind of ads for, you know, this product can help your metabolic efficiency or, you know, or whatever. That's the last thing you want, at least in your fat cells. And this is an area of research in my lab where we study a phenomenon referred to as mitochondrial uncoupling in fat cells, where when the mitochondria are uncoupled, they're wasting energy and just wasting it as heat. They're burning glucose and fats and just producing heat. Well, that's a metabolic advantage. If you could have your fat cells just burning their own fat, even though you're not forcing it to burn fat because of exercising, well, now you have a bit of a, a boost there where the fat cells are on their own, just shrinking, not because they have to, because the muscles need the energy, but just the fat cells are just wasting their energy. And that's what happens when insulin is low and ketones are higher. The moment the insulin comes up, it immediately stops that process and says to the, the, the fat cells, hey, you've been wasting energy. That is inefficient. I need you to be efficient because I want us to store as much energy as possible. That's one of insulin's main actions around the body. It wants to store energy. And if mitochondria in the fat cells are wasting energy, well, insulin can't tolerate that. Wow. Awesome. Well, I want to um, kind of shift gears and talk about eating before and after exercise. I think I've seen a post that you did about this, but can you kind of say best practice for eating before and after exercise? Yeah. Yeah. So my general, it would, it would largely depend on what the motivation of the exercise is. Of course, if someone listening to this is exercising for performance, then there's no reason to limit whatever you're eating. You know, like if you have to go, if you're performing for an Ironman boy, you got to be eating. If you're trying to break a, a you know, some, some kind of weightlifting record, you got to be eating. But for those of us, myself included, who exercise because you want the long-term benefits of optimal metabolic health, then there is evidence to suggest that you don't want to end your workout by spiking your glucose and your insulin. That the study done in women, although there's other studies done, but the recent study was done in women that found that when they finished their workout by eating uh, some starches, like sugars, it was actually in a, in a sports drink, which is what everybody does. They get a sports drink or they go get a smoothie, unfortunately. So a lot of people do this unwittingly. Um, it made them more insulin resistant the entire next day so compared to the group that didn't eat after their workout, that didn't consume the starches. And so if a person feels like they really need to eat after a workout, then I would say focus on protein and fat. That is, in fact, what's going to help you with your recovery anyway. It's not the starches that's going to help with that. It's the muscle and the, and the it's the protein and the fat that'll help with muscle recovery um, and muscle growth. And so focus on those two. But if you can, and you feel comfortable fasting after your workout in prolonging that, then I'd say, boy, well, that's kind of metabolic magic. That's really going to have some long-term benefit. Even for muscle growth, you know, there's, I've, I've heard a lot that you should eat. There's a window of time where you should eat after exercise to induce hyper muscle. Yeah. And that's not true. Yes. Yeah, oh, wow, so Dr. Really? Dr. Stuart Phillips is really an expert on this. So Stuart Phillips, anyone, please look up his work just so you, uh, people don't think I'm making this up. So Stu Phillips um, is an expert on protein and muscle protein synthesis. And he had found, he used this analogy of, 
a window versus a barn door. And he said, everyone thinks that there's a, a window in which you need to eat your protein in order to induce muscle growth. But he said, like following a workout, but he said, it's really a barn door that basically it's like this rolling 24 to 48 hour average that if a person is eating sufficient protein in that really big barn door period of time, then there's going to be no problem with muscle growth. The muscle will grow as much as it can in response to the stimulus and protein won't be a limiting factor. So it's not a window. It's a barn door. Wow. Okay. That's huge. It's huge because it's, it's a little liberating where the person isn't fast. They're fasting and they can know, all right, I'm not going to be shrinking my muscle now. Yeah. I mean, that was always a concern for me because I, I fasted and now I haven't been fasting. And now I'm now after this conversation, I'm considering going back to it Um, because it's easier. It's like one less meal to eat. It's like Mm -hmm. very convenient. Um, Okay. So anything else that we, that we missed here that you think is important to touch on? I'm looking through my list. I think I asked you everything that I wanted to ask you. Now we've covered some good topics and, and um, I can't help but wonder at the fact that your your audience might be more female to male in, in a ratio. And I think it's very important for the gals to know they can fast and that there's no evidence of a long-term um, harm but uh, that, that can occur in their body because that is so often mentioned that, well, women can't fast, that it hurts them. I don't know of any evidence to support that conclusion, but boy, it is sure tossed around a lot. It is. And I think the argument is that uh, with, especially with menstruating females, that it affects uh, sex hormones and and things like that. But you're saying there's no evidence for that either. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting though, because you mentioned menstruation and, and I can't help but think about the female cycle. There's a fascinating effect of estrogens and progesterone on hunger. And, and a woman can track this I'm not a woman, of course. I'm making no claims. In fact, I've gotten a lot of heat in the past of, oh, great, another man thinking he knows about women. I don't think I know (laughs) anything. I just know what the textbooks and the published research say. So just to put that out there, don't don't come at me, please, nobody. But progesterone is a hunger hormone. And, And so during her ovulatory cycle, when progesterone climbs during that window in which it does for those kind of couple days, uh, there is an increase in hunger. Progesterone is stimulating hunger. And that's not a surprise because, because progesterone wants to store energy. Progesterone is the hunger of, ge- is the, sorry, the hormone of gestation. And when progesterone is up, that's the female body signal to store energy because we need to store energy because we're about to grow a little human being. And then even after the human being has grown enough to come out, we're going to feed that little human being. And so we need to have as much energy stored on the body as possible. So progesterone wants, like insulin, it works very much in concert with insulin. It wants to store energy. And that's no surprise then that it starts stimulating hunger. Because if you're pushing energy from the blood into the cells, there's less energy in the blood. And the brain is thinking, hey, I'm running out of energy. Let's eat a little more. And it will initiate this hunger sequence. And so it's interesting to note the difference is as estrogens and progesterone have their very kind of beautiful orchestra or, or, or um, their dance throughout the ovulatory cycle, progesterone is a hunger hormone and hunger, a hunger inducing hormone. And that can explain why a, a gal may notice within the midst of a healthy ovulatory cycle, hunger will come and go at certain times as well, or be a little more pronounced. And maybe make it harder to stay on a fast if right. you're so during that time, then when, when a woman, during that ovulatory mm-hmm, period mm-hmm. Do, is fasting, 
Like, should you change your fasting? Should you just ignore your hunger? That's a really good question. And I have to speculate because I don't know of studies that have looked at this. I would say don't ignore the hunger. And during the actual menstrual period, I'd say, yeah, you're, you really probably um, should be eating a little more. And, And I would say eat some red meat. Um, just to not only make up for the energy that you want to store, but also to make sure you're compensating for the lost iron. Okay. Amazing. Amazing. Well, this was so thorough and I, I really learned a lot. I'm really excited about this episode. Can you tell everyone where they can find you? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So people, I have a, a blog and um, a supplement that people can look at and they can learn more about that at a website called Get Health. And health is spelled H-L-T-H, gethealth.com. Um, I wrote a whole book about insulin resistance. You can find it kind of anywhere books are sold. It's called Why We Get Sick. Um, and that just explains what insulin resistance is, where it comes from, why it matters, and what to do about it. And then I'm pretty active on Instagram mostly, but also Twitter a little. Instagram is just a more friendly place. Um, but people can find me at Ben Bickman, PhD, and Bickman, no C in Bickman, B I K M A N. Um, and, and I don't, it's not pictures of me working out or me with my family or anything. It's just, usually little tidbits of, you know, kind of little classroom sessions about human metabolism. Yes. Very educational page. It's, it's awesome. I, I binge your content all the time. Oh, I appreciate it. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ben. If you want to stay on, um, we'll kind of, we'll chat after you this, bet. but I'm going to stop recording and thank you all for listening. We'll see y'all next week.